So where you go from here depends on where you are now. If you have a relationship with Jesus but somehow drifted away, come back. Jesus says to the five churches that he reprimands, repent, return to me, your first love. Psalm 139, 23-24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, bear your soul before the Lord and take his counsel. It's a hard thing to do, but the results can be wonderful. Now, if you've been a member of Laodicea, one of the, one of the lukewarm, just plain church, or you've never been in any church, you're one of the cold that Jesus talks about, never had a relationship, today is the day for salvation. You don't want to hear the word, I never knew you depart from me. Instead, you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. My name is Greg, and I serve as a ministries director here at Heartland, and it is great to be here. I will be uh, filling in for Pastor Denny, who came back yesterday with his uh, lovely wife Sue and the Manthes, so we're grateful that he came back to us. You know, Denny's a big history buff, so I thought maybe he would have stayed there for a couple more months to take in the site. So thank you for coming back, Pastor Denny. And by the way, if you're anxious to get behind the podium, who am I to steal your joy? You're welcome to... <laughs> oh, it is good to be here. You know, and I, I don't preach a lot here, uh, which will probably become self-evident. Um, but, but my favorite thing about preaching is the, pre- the preparing. I love to prepare for a sermon because you learn so much. I learned a lot when I prepared for this sermon, and what a joy it is to be in God's Word and to study it and to learn from it. So our, uh, our sermon title today is, To Which Church Do You Belong? So you may be asking yourself or thinking, Greg, really? I've been a member here at Heartland for years. I'm here. I belong to Heartland Church. Well, today we're going to go a bit deeper and try to discover what church we've been attending in our spirit. Where are we spiritually? And more to come about that, but for right now... Let's talk about the weather. Beautiful weather today, right? 84, 85 degrees, sunny. Uh, we're in the heart of the lakes. What a, what a great day, right? October 1st, by the way. Isn't that awesome? I, I love this time of the year. You know, the, it's fall. The mornings are crisp. The evenings are cool. And everything in between is, is good. Except for the box elders and the, uh, the other beetles, right? They're coming out in full, full stream. Uh, but you know what? <laughs> I, I, I hate to bring this up. I really do. What's coming next? <laughs> the W word. And with it comes the S word. And the C word for crappy, right? <laughs> but it's coming. It's coming, guys. Except for you snowbirds. And you know who you are. But praise God, you can go and get away from this. But for those of, those of us who are left, we Minnesotans, we've got to endure that. And what comes on the heels of winter? This, you know. So far, this has been a really encouraging sermon, hasn't it? 
I, I'm just so happy to uplift your spirits today. But so how do you protect yourself against sickness during the upcoming season? You know, you can, you can take vitamins, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D. Uh, you can uh, get plenty of exercise. A healthy diet is always good. And make sure you get plenty of rest. That, that'll protect you during that season. And when you get sick, that will also help you to come out of it sooner. Uh, but what about spiritually? More importantly our physical, than our physical health is our spiritual health. How do we assess where we are and what we need to do to be spiritually fit? How do we know if we're spiritually sick or spiritually healthy? Now, what if the Lord were to come in here right now and sit down with each and every one of us and evaluate us and tell us about the things we're doing well, the things we're doing not so well, and maybe give us some correction? Wouldn't that be great? Would that be a little bit scary? Well, I got good news. He did just that almost 2,000 years ago when he wrote the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And like all Scripture, it applies just as much today as it did then. And we're going to see that. So today we're going to look at these uh, letters and see just what the Lord has to say about our spiritual health as he assessed the churches almost 2,000 years ago. And now you may be asking, isn't there an easier way why do we have to go through all this just to, term, to determine where we are spiritually? And my answer to you would be, because Jesus says so. Okay? Let's see it trump that one. <laughs> Jesus says so. He, he wrote those letters to the churches, in, which is actually to the entire church. He didn't just write to seven physical churches. He wrote to the entire church age. Starting at, uh, starting at Pentecost, and we'll go all the way through the rapture. Guess what? We're part of that church age. We're living in it right now. And so, i got to tell you, this is going to be a lot of info at once. Uh, it's it's going to be a little bit like this. <laughs> Have you ever tried to take a drink from a fire hose? It's, it's a lot coming at you. But uh, with the Lord's help, we can get through this. Amen? Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we just we thank you so much for bringing us here today. Thank you for this wonderful day, Lord. Uh, what a joy it is to uh, worship in your house together, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, Father, and uh, that, that we would glean from it what it is you want us to, and that we would carry that with us and bring it out into the world with us today. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, uh, seven, la seven layers, that's a cake, right? <laughs> seven letters were dictated uh, by our Lord to the Apostle John around 95 A.D. And uh, these seven uh, churches that we speak of were seven literal uh, churches in real cities. You can see, and this is a map, a partial map of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So you see where it starts with Ephesus in the lower left, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Interestingly, they're in a clockwise pattern, which would seem to indicate time periods as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And so John was actually on, on the isle, island of Patmos. It was kind of a prison island, sort of like a 
historical Alcatraz, if you will, where the, uh, the um, ones that they didn't want to deal with, the undesirables, were shipped off there. They were forced to work in mines. They had to fend for themselves, provide their own food and, and whatnot, and the, the mortality rate was quite high out there. So this was not a pleasant place. Um, so John was not exactly living in luxury, but uh, he was in prayer one day, and as our text read, uh, the Lord said to him, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So you may be asking yourself, why just these seven churches? What, weren't there a lot more churches? What about the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, the church in Rome or Jerusalem? Why just these seven? And I'm glad you asked that. Uh, because whenever we see uh, seven in Scripture, God is communicating completeness. He means 100%. We see that in the Genesis account. Six days he created the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested. So the process was complete after seven days. Uh, in Revelation alone, the number seven is mentioned 57 times. We've got the seven churches, the seven candlesticks, the seven stars, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments, and with that seventh, each one is complete. So by, the, by Jesus writing to seven churches, he, again, he, he's, re, he's writing to the entire church, and not just at that time, but the entire church through the entire church age, starting with Pentecost and ending with the rapture. So I would say he really, really knew what he was doing. Amen? That's our God. So as we continue in our text, uh, John is given a vision of the glorified Christ. He writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So this was not the Jesus that John remembered, right? This is the glorified Christ. John didn't go up to him and say, hey, Jesus, high five, it's been 60-some years. Last time I saw you, you were going up, and now you're here. And No, he didn't know him. If you go one verse, far, one verse further, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, that happened to other people in Scripture as well. You look at Daniel. When, when Daniel had the vision of the pre-incarnate Christ before him, he, he was told to speak, and he said, speak, Lord, I can barely breathe until he touched him and strengthened him. So uh, he, the Lord definitely showed his power. And so he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is in control. And he still is, by the way. And I want to point something out here from this text. 
Jesus calls himself the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the eternal God. So if somebody knocks on your door someday and says, I want to talk to you about Jesus, and the Jesus they want to talk about is, is not equal to God, he's a lesser God, he's anything other than who we know he is, you point them to that scripture, and you tell them our God is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and that's our Jesus. Amen? All right. I'm off my soapbox now. Um, so... We're going to go a little bit further in the text here. And the Lord says, write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that take place after this. So in reading that, we can see that Revelation is actually divided into three parts. And, and John, John tells him, write about the things, uh, uh, those that you have seen. The things that he has seen is the image of Christ. He just saw that, and he, he says, write about that, the glorified Christ. Those that are the age that John is living in, the church age, and we're in the those that are stage right now, by the way, and what will take place after this. And that starts in, in uh, the church ages, chapter 2 and 3. What takes place after this is, is chapter 4 and onward, because chapter 4 starts with, after this, I looked. So that's the after. So we're concerned with the... Uh, things that are right now, and uh, that's the Lord speaking to us. And then he says, he goes on to say, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And that's important because Jesus says, the churches are in my right hand. I am controlling. I'm in charge. I always have been, and I always will be. And that's something that we can learn as well. So, we need then, knowing that God is still in control, Jesus, uh, we need to pay close attention to what he has to say. Because when he's writing to the seven churches, he's writing to each and every one of us as well. Amen? Okay. Now, i I, got to give a little disclaimer here. Time does not allow us to do a thorough examination of the churches or even read any of the letters in their entirety. Uh, But we will touch on the main takeaway points and see how they apply to each of us. I would strongly encourage you to study further into the book of Revelation. I've given you some notes at the end uh, of your uh, bulletin, at the sermon notes, Great study by Stephen Armstrong, verse-by-verse ministries, goes into so much more detail because there is so much. In fact, I encourage you to read and and study the book of Revelation, and do you know why? The book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that offers a blessing just for reading and hearing it and taking it to heart. It says, it, it, it says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this testimony, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So we need to pay close attention to what the Lord has to say. So let's start with the churches here. Let's start with Ephesus. That's the first letter uh, that Jesus sends. Ephesus was a port city located on the Mediterranean Sea. Its name meant desirable or desired. The city was very wealthy due to the tremendous flow of goods through the port. 
As it was a port city, it also brought sailors and travelers, and as, as a result, the city had many temples devoted to many pagan Roman gods. In the midst of the, this bustling city, we also have one of the largest, most influential churches in the first century. Jesus had a lot of good things to say about the church in Ephesus. He says, he starts off with, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So by Jesus' admission here, this, is, this was a hard-working church. They seem to be doing all of the right things. If they were around today, they would probably have a men's and women's ministry. They'd probably have a WANA. They'd probably have VBS. All the good things. And they would probably operate quite vigorously. Now, they were also defenders of the truth, according to Jesus. They tested those who claimed to be apostles, and they found them false. They probably tested them against Scripture, which Paul says, kudos to you, right? And then, and then another good thing, Jesus says, is they also hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Isn't that great news? Well, who in the world are the Nicolaitans? And no, this is not chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry ice cream. That's Neapolitan. <laughs> but that did run through my mind. These are the Nicolaitans. And the term means victorious over the people or to conquer the laity to conquer the people. Uh, many believe they were introducing the heresy of a ruling class over the people in the church, much like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And we all know what Jesus had to say about them, right? So Ephesus sounds like it has everything. Then the Lord lays this on them. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So who is our first love as a believer? Well, it better be Jesus, right? It's interesting that Ephesus means desire, even though they had lost their desire for their Savior. They were doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. More concerned about potlucks and church programs than they were about spreading the gospel. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13.3? If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is a serious matter, and our Lord is not taking it lightly. So what is his counsel? Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. Now, we as believers, we, we should know what it means to repent, reject your sin, turn away from it, and change direction, right? But what does he mean by remember from where you have fallen and do the things you did at first? Where, where were you when you first got saved? Where were you when you first met Jesus? Go back to that place and do it. We should do it often. We should remember where we were when we fell in love with our Savior, right? All we wanted to do was be in His Word. We wanted to get to know Him more. We wanted to serve Him. We wanted to go tell others about Him. 
That's where we were at first. And he says, remember where you have fallen. Do those things where you were at. Do those things that you did at first. And we can all do them. We can all do them. Have you ever been to Ephesus? Have you ever found yourself doing the right things for the wrong reasons, even in ministry? Have you ever lacked the love of Christ and found yourself just going through the motions? It's not too late to leave Ephesus and return to your first love. Now, we're going to have a date with, with each one of these churches. Uh, I want to tell you this is not biblical, but this is where a lot of uh, theologians and historians agree that this was the major date of this time period of this church. So we're going to give Ephesus the date of uh, 30 to 100 A.D., um, but I also want to note here that there has always been and always will be an Ephesus and a Smyrna and a Pergamum and so on. That, that spirit will be in every church and, and with every believer. There's always a potential to be part of every one of them. But this is just the major period in history where that uh, church was predominant. So that's why we're noting the dates. Next church is Smyrna. Um, so Smyrna actually means myrrh, which was commonly used to anoint dead bodies before burial. You'll probably remember that was one of the three gifts of the wise men given to Jesus. Um, now in John's day, Smyrna was a Roman city full of pagan temples, most notably a temple to the emperor Tiberius, which made the town the heart of emperor worship in Asia Minor. Thus it became an early persecutor of Christians. Roman law at the time prohibited any religion except emperor worship, with the exception of Judaism due to the Jews' known stubbornness to conform. They just figured it's just, it's just easier to let them do their own thing than go through all the hassle of making them do what we're never going to get them to do anyway, right? Uh, so for a short time in the first century, Romans viewed Christians as an offshoot of Judaism. So the church enjoyed pretty much the same protections as the, as the Jews. They kind of left them alone. But before the end of the century, the church had become predominantly Gentile. And as, as a result, the Romans came to see the church as distinct from Judaism and actually a threat to the empire. Also, the Jews rejected and persecuted the Christians, therefore, or thereby, becoming allies with the Romans against the church. So, Smyrna seems to have been on the forefront of this transition between tolerating Christianity and persecuting believers. So, Jesus gives the following words of comfort to the persecuted church. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So they had worldly poverty, but Jesus knew that that was true riches. Through their persecution, they remained faithful, and Jesus saw that as riches, and he wanted to remind them of that. So Jesus gives no reprimand, as there is no need to rebuke the persecuted church, but he encourages them in their suffering. During his ministry, our Lord encouraged all of us in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, when he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So Jesus goes on to encourage the persecuted church by saying, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now the crown does not give them eternal life, as that is already theirs by faith in Christ, but rather a reward for their righteous acts and faithfulness, which is awarded to each of us for our acts of faithfulness. Also interesting that Smyrna means myrrh, which was used to anoint the bodies of the dead, as many in this church were persecuted even to the point of death. Have you ever been to Smyrna? Do you ever feel that you are unjustly persecuted for your faith? Have you ever been mocked, criticized, or left out socially because of your faith? Take heart, for your suffering is temporal. And, your, and the lover of your soul will never leave you nor forsake you. That's his promise. So we're going to give uh, Smyrna the years 100 through 313 A.D. And we'll see why in just a moment when we talk about Pergamum, who's next on the ballot, on the docket. Pergamum. Uh, the name Pergamum comes from two Greek words, pergos and gamos. Pergos means a tower or citadel, like a powerful fortress, and gamos means matrimony or union. So the two words together mean married to a powerful institution or fortress. Let's see if they live up to their name. Now Jesus has a few good things to say about Pergamum. He says, I know, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, time does not allow us to unpack this statement fully, but suffice it to say that Pergamum was dominated by pagan worship, making it a very spiritually dark place. Despite the spiritual climate, the church was standing firm in the face of persecution. Even when those like Antipas were martyred, the church remained firm in their faith. But that's about where it ends. The good stuff is over now. As Jesus continues on with this reprimand, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what exactly is happening to cause the Lord to to rebuke this church in this particular way? Now, interestingly, this period in church history was marked by the Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion and adoption of the Christian church as the official church of Rome. In 313 A.D., Constantine supposedly saw on the battlefield a vision of a cross and the words in hoc signo vices, which translated from Latin means by this sign conquer. As a result of Constantine's conversion, he ordered the forced baptism of all Roman citizens, whether they believed or not. Now in the church and the so, so now, the church and the government were married to each other, hence their name. Along with these new pagan church members came many of their practices, including temple priests, hierarchy of clergy, statues of idols, and various other pagan practices. 
In the spirit of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, Pergamum sold out in exchange for status rather than persecution, indulging in immorality and idolatry. So Jesus offers this counsel, therefore repent, turn away from that behavior. Have you ever been to Pergamum? Have you ever compromised your faith to get ahead in this world? Have you ever sacrificed God's truth to avoid persecution or embarrassment or to simply just fit in? If you've been there, Jesus simply says, repent and turn back to him. We're going to give uh, Pergamum between 313 and 600. 313, when Constantine uh, con- uh, converted or made Christianity, Christianity the official religion and basically through the end of the Roman Empire. <clears throat> so the next church is Thyatira. The next letter goes out to Thyatira. Some scholars believe uh, the name means perpetual sacrifice, while Strong's Concordance suggests odor of affliction. Neither one is pleasant. Like Pergamum, it was filled with pagan worship, but also had many trade guilds or trade unions. Often during these trade guild meetings, they would eat meat sacrificed to pagan gods with orgies often part of their meal. Failure to to participate would usually mean banishment from the trade guild, making it nearly impossible to earn a living. To the church, Jesus offers a few positive comments. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So they were doing a lot of good things. They were probably feeding the hungry, uh, caring for the sick, giving shelter to the homeless, maybe even starting hospitals and so on. But as we know, good works, even done out of love, are not the core of the church's mission. It's the gospel. Listen to our Lord's rebuke. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now the original Jezebel was the evil wife of King Ahab who persuaded him to commit many immoralities in the northern kingdom of Israel. So the church of Thyatira allowed that same Jezebel spirit into their midst that allowed heretical teaching and immoral behavior. Jesus counsels them with these words, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. To those who are caught up in this sinful behavior, he says, repent, or there will be severe consequences." He's not taking this lightly. Incidentally, this is the period where the, where the Black Plague was going on in Europe and in the modern world at that time, killing millions and millions and millions of people. So it's interesting that that happened at that time frame. To the faithful who resisted the heresy and immorality, Jesus says, only hold fast, excuse me, only hold fast uh, to what you have until I come. Have you ever been to Thyatira? Have you ever allowed yourself to make excuses for sinful behavior even though you knew in your heart that it was wrong? 
Have you ever, in the name of love, accepted teaching that was contrary to God's word? It's not too late to leave Thyatira and return to your Savior. Thyatira, uh, between 600 and 1517, when the Reformation started. The next church we're going to uh, talk about, or the next letter, goes out to Sardis. Sardis is thought by some to mean those escaping or remnant. It was, uh, Sardis was an important commercial center where the process of dyeing wool was actually invented. Sardis was a true church, but it was weak in one very key way. Listen to the words of Jesus. I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now Sardis fell victim to the warning found in James 2.20. James writes, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Faith without works is dead. Now we know that James is not saying that you are saved by faith plus works, but faith alone. However, a genuine faith is demonstrated by its fruit, good works. Most of the people in the church of Sardis became lazy and neglected to be the hands and feet of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This was clearly not the case in Sardis. Jesus, Jesus gives them this counsel. Wake up and strengthen what is about to die. Remember, then, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Jesus is telling them to wake up and be his hands and his feet. Get out there and tell the world about him and don't lose the faith that you already have. Have you ever been to Sardis? Have you ever gotten lazy in your faith? Have you felt the Holy Spirit asking you to share your faith, but instead you just made excuses? Jesus says it's not too late to wake up and be his faithful servant. Sardis, we're going to give the period of uh, between 1517 and 1648 when the missionary church starts, and that is the church at Philadelphia. Facts about Philadelphia. The, the name, as most of you know, means city of brotherly love. It was, the, it was a small but prosperous commercial center in the early church. Philadelphia, along with Smyrna, are the only two churches for which Jesus has no rebuke. Both were persecuted, yet both remained faithful. Jesus says the following to Philadelphia, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church of Philadelphia has proven itself under persecution to remain faithful. As a result, Jesus has given them an open door. And as he says, when Jesus opens a door, no one can shut it. This is a door open to go out and share the gospel. This is when the, the, the missionaries went out. This is a great period where the gospel was brought to many ends of the earth. 
And he did that because they had proven worthy to do so. So the Lord's only counsel to them was hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He's reminding them that they are rewarded with a crown at the end of the race when they come before Jesus. So don't stop running until the end. And that's good advice for all of us, right? Have you ever been to Philadelphia? I hope so. I hope you're there right now. And if not, I hope you come soon and that you remain there until the Lord's return. It's a great place to be. But that's about to change. Philadelphia, 1648 through 1900. We're getting close, folks. The last period of the church, Laodicea. People know this as the disgusting church. Laodicea, it actually means people ruling or judgment of the people. Interesting. The city was known for its banks, linen and woolen industry, and it also had a medical school. It was by far the wealthiest city in the district. In fact, it was once destroyed in 60 AD and actually refused refused any aid from Rome because they were wealthy enough to rebuild on their own. They were proud of their self-sufficiency. Now, Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea. In fact, he goes right to the punch with the following. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those are very harsh words. What does Jesus mean by this? Let's start with the part, about, uh, the part about hot, cold, and lukewarm and spitting them out of his mouth. The word is actually better translated to vomiting them out of his mouth. He wants to vomit them out. It's interesting to note that Laodicea was located in a valley surrounded by mountains with two streams of water flowing into the city at Laodicea. One stream with cold, refreshing water came from the southeast. The second source came from the other direction uh, and was fed by a hot spring, and it produced a sulfuric hot water. In Laodicea, the two streams combined, producing a a foul-tasting, lukewarm, and poisonous water that made you vomit when you drank it. Isn't that interesting? So the people in Laodicea would understand the word picture that the Lord was presenting. So, a little bit more about the, uh, the hot and the cold and the lukewarm. Um, he describes them, uh, he actually says that he wishes that they were hot or cold, one or the other, but not lukewarm. Well, what about the cold part? We can probably figure out the hot. You know, the, the hot are those who are Christians, and they're genuine. You know, you say you're on fire for the Lord, you're hot. You're a believer, and everybody knows it. The cold are the non-believers, but they are the ones that let you know they're a non-believer. Everybody knows it, okay? The lukewarm 
are the ones that are pretending to be believers. They are the ones that are talking the talk, but not walking the walk. And it makes Jesus sick to the point that he wants to vomit them out of his mouth. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but those words scare, scare everything out of me. Not for me personally, but for those who don't know him. You don't want to hear those words. These are the lukewarm, those pretending to be Christians. Jesus goes on to say that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So what is his counsel? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Well, Jesus was being metaphorical when he said that they were poor and blind and naked and so on. He knew that they had all these worldly things, but he knew that they were worthless to to them. And so he was telling them, he was inviting them to get from him what was real. Gold refined in the fire, that's our treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy Uh, the uh, garments, the white garments to clothe yourself, that is the righteousness of Christ that we put on when we're believers. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see God's truth. That's what Jesus wants for this church. This is the age that we're in now, but we don't have to belong to the church in Laodicea. We can see all around us how mainline churches are abandoning Scripture and sacrificing the truth of God's God's truth on the altar of worldliness, prosperity, and political correctness. And by the way, the age of this church is 1900 until the rapture of the church. So we're in it right now. And may, may I remind each and every one of us here today that we are just one small step from Laodicea. If we fail to adhere to God's, to the truth that we find in his word, we can find ourselves there. It's a slippery slope that we may not ever get back from. So where you go from here depends on where you are now. If you have a relationship with Jesus but somehow drifted away, come back. Jesus says to the five churches that he reprimands, repent, return to me, your first love. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, bear your soul before the Lord and take his counsel. It's a hard thing to do. But the results can be wonderful. They can draw us into him. 
Now, if you've been a member of Laodicea, one of the, one of the lukewarm, just plain church, or you've never been in any church, you're one of the cold that Jesus talks about, never had a relationship, today is the day for salvation. You don't want to hear the words, I never knew you, depart from me. Instead, you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus makes one final plea in Revelation 3.20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is not a dinner invitation. This is a plea for eternal life. Jesus is making his final plea to this church and to all of us. Today can be the day of salvation. And you may ask, how can I be saved? How can I come into this relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, he makes it very simple. He says, repent. Turn away from your sinful ways. Reject the ways of the world. Reject the ways of sin. And believe in me. And it's not a head knowledge belief. It's a heart knowledge belief. Receive Jesus Christ into your heart. Make him the Lord of your life. That's how you believe in Jesus. That is the moment that you are, as the Bible says, born again. And then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and the angels in heaven are rejoicing. And then you go and you be baptized. That's a command from our Lord. Folks, it's October 1st. It's 85 degrees today, the sun's out, and we're in the heart of the lakes. Go get baptized. Okay? 